Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet author Jody Helmer, who reads from and discusses her book, Protecting Pollinators, how to save the creatures that feed our world. This is a nonfiction book, not a dystopian novel of things to come, but that makes it even more disconcerting because the threats to the birds, the bats, and the insects that pollinate our world are real. Bee and butterfly populations have plummeted by a third or more, and many pollinator species are under attack by habitat loss, invasive species, pesticides, and climate change. In this episode, we explore the beauty, challenges, and quirks of working with pollinators and tips on how to avoid a world without them. Jody also discusses her book, Growing Your Own Tea Garden. In addition to tea, shares what other delicacies might be lost if we don't take care of the birds and the bees. We start the show with Jody reading about children and butterflies from the chapter entitled, Helping Without Hurting. Three rows of children sat on the steps in front of Davidson College Presbyterian Church, all eyes focused on two mesh cages. The preschoolers, some with handmade crowns perched on their heads, others wearing butterfly masks that made them look like lepidopterous superheroes, had been waiting for this moment. Their teacher held up a stuffed creature and asked, What is this? Their voices rose in unison, A caterpillar! And what is it after it's a caterpillar? A chrysalis! And what is it after it's a chrysalis? A butterfly! The annual spring butterfly release capped off a curriculum on pollinators. Preschool director Kristen Clark explained that the children had learned about the life cycle of the fragile creatures. This was the finish line to their pollinator marathon. They had been training for this day, literally. The children practiced the program, which included songs like Fly, Fly, Butterfly, sung to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and learned what to do if one of the 300 released butterflies landed on them. The advice? Stay still. Residents of the North Carolina college town fluttered in to witness the event. A tow-headed toddler wearing glittery butterfly wings over her sundress raced towards the mesh cage, her arms outstretched, shouting, Come here, blood butterfly! Land on me! Before her mom could pull her back, Associate Pastor John Ryan recited a prayer that included the lines, O little butterfly, messenger of God, fly away as high as you can go, fly, fly, little wings, fly to where the angels sing, go now, find the light, and keep the joy in your sight. Then a teacher from each of the nine classes opened an envelope or unzipped the mesh habitats. The colorful monarchs, giant swallowtails, and painted ladies took flight, and all of the children, squealing with delight, tipped their faces toward the sky. A butterfly landed on the shoulder of a little boy wearing a superhero t-shirt and a butterfly mask, and just as he practiced, he stood still while his classmates gathered around in awe. Jody Helmer is the author of six books, including two 2019 releases, Protecting Pollinators, How to Save the Creatures that Feed Our World, Island Press, and Growing Your Own Tea Garden, Companion House Books. As a freelance journalist, Jody has written about food, farming, and the environment for many years covering everything from growing apples to managing zoos. For national magazines such as Scientific American, Sierra, National Geographic Traveler, Modern Farmer, Civil Eats, NPR, and Smithsonian.com. Born and raised in Canada, Jody is now a Canuck in the South and lives on a small farm outside of Charlotte with her husband and their menagerie of dogs, goats, chickens, bees, and one very spoiled donkey. 
When she's not writing, she loves planning home improvement projects with her favorite handyman and taking their five rescue dogs for long walks through their little town where traffic often comes to a halt and a passerby can ask, are those all yours? Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Jody, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, so this bio that I just read, you know, you live on a farm, but it sounds like you could live in a zoo, right? Let's put the dogs aside for a second, all right, and talk about these other creatures that you live with. So we have um, a donkey named Waylon Jennings. Really? <laughs> who we jokingly say is a real ass. Um, yeah, and yeah. uh, five goats and yeah. four chickens who share a pasture. Wow, share a pasture. Uh, Waylon and Jennings. Uh, was, you don't have a Willie Nelson? Willie, Willie Nelson is one of our goats. <laughs> okay. Now let's talk about the dogs. I said you had five, but I think there's been an update to this. Uh, the dogs are ever-evolving. We have seven rescue dogs at home now, yes. And what types? Six dachshund and dachshund mixes, and one large lab mix. So how do you get any riding done with seven <laughs> rescue dogs? Uh, are they outside dogs? Are they inside dogs? They're inside dogs. Okay. Um, most of them are senior citizens, okay. so they do a lot of napping. Uh, um, and as long as we keep them well exercised, they're pretty chill in the house. All right. Well, maybe we'll have a podcast someday on how you walk seven dogs but that's not the topic for today um all right so we're gonna be talking about uh, the birds and the bees today a little bit plant sex all these interesting topics uh i understand your research took you to b school right not to be somebody but my research did take <laughs> me to b school in fact i went to b school before this uh, book was even a glimmer in my eye and uh, it started because several years ago my husband who is terribly, terribly hard to buy a gift for, expressed a passing interest in beekeeping. And I glommed onto that. And that, that was just enough, right? It was just enough. <laughs> he and shouldn't have said a thing, should he? He shouldn't have. So he got a hive for Christmas. And <laughs> well, 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 yeah, Who gets a hive for Christmas? I mean, come on. My husband. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Are they, are they under the tree? I mean, the bees? and I mean, yeah. Where the hive you, where, comes separate from the bees. How do you wrap a hive? So, so you... The hive comes just as a, a box with the equipment. Okay. And I gave that to him for Christmas. Right. And then you don't install the bees until the spring. Okay. So we then had to order what's called a package of bees in the spring. And then mm. you put that package of bees into the hive. Mm. And so it was two separate pieces. So he got this hive. He got this package of bees. And I said, this is all your thing. I am terrified. I'm not going outside. But I was also fascinated. And mm. so he would go out and he would inspect the hive. You need to do this regularly to make sure everybody is doing well. And I would stand inside the house and he would bring the hive frames, which are those individual kind of pieces that sit inside the box. He would bring them to the window and where I was safely behind the screen. And he would show me what was happening and we would talk all about it. The more that we did this, the more that we realized we really needed to learn more about how to keep bees because it's really complicated. Mm. And so uh, extension services offer bee school. And so we went to the Cabarrus County Extension Office and registered for bee school, which is an eight-week evening course where they teach you everything you need to know about keeping bees so that we could better maintain our hive. So we're in the city here. We're recording in Advent co-working in, in Belmar community. We can see 
the, the gleaming buildings of uptown Charlotte and distance, nobody around here goes to B-School, right? You would be shocked. Really? Yeah. Oh, there okay. are the B-Schools in Charlotte, which are offered by... There are through, B-Schools. There okay. are many B-Schools in Charlotte offered through Mecklenburg County Extension, and they almost always sell out. Okay. So there are people going to B-School in Charlotte. Tons of people. Do you get a B-Certificate? I mean... <laughs> You do not get a B certificate from B school. I okay. then followed up Cabarrus County right. Extension. I was going to ask you got an A in B school, but I want I didn't want to go there. <laughs> they don't grade you in B school. They don't grade you. They don't. Every, um, everybody's average, is that right? Yeah. Everybody. That's what they'll have you believe. Although okay. some people caught on to it more quickly than others. It's I it's a you. difficult uh, it's a difficult <laughs> hobby. All right, we're going to have a lot of fun on the show today, starting with B school, and uh, but you're also a. Uh, certified journeyman beekeeper now, right? Correct. So I realized... So you actually went outside at one time. You got a route out from behind the glass partition. I did. I got out from behind the screen and I started working the hive um, and had gone to bee school and felt like that was a decent foundation, but realized that when you're trying to care for 50,000 bees in a hive, which is what's average, Mm. and they're facing all sorts of threats like pesticides and habitat loss, and even things like mice will attack beehives, that in order to keep them alive, you need to know a lot more than they teach you in bee school. And so I started taking classes through the University of Montana's continuing education department, where I became a certified journeyman beekeeper, which sounds super fancy, but it's mm. the lowest level of certification. Mm. So you're kind of a yellow belt when it comes to the black belt series. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I, I got to ask this question. So I, I've got a, I got a little rescue dog too, and if, if there's an insect buzzing around the house, bee or whatever, she's gonna try to catch it, right? How do these seven rescue dogs do around a, a beehive? When we lived in, we started keeping bees when we lived in Charlotte and we kept them in our backyard. And so the dogs had access to the hives and trying to convince them at first not to poke their noses in the hives was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> Less so for the smaller ones because yeah. the hives sit up on tables and the little ones couldn't reach. Right. But the lab thought that, I don't know, she wanted to make friends with the bees. I'm not sure what she was mm. thinking. Uh, she got stung several times on one outing and that was the last time she went near the beehive now <laughs> so, the beehives are in the very back pasture not near any of the animals all right let's go so all right so we're talking about protecting pollinators how to save the creatures that feed our world uh, your most uh, uh, recent uh, nonfiction book here and and so who are the pollinators let's start there it's a good question so there's a bee on the cover of the book people often think of bees as the only pollinators and certainly they are important pollinators but There are also uh, pollinating um, invertebrates and insects. So it's things like bats and hummingbirds and butterflies and moths and all sorts of creepy crawly creatures. Mm. We're going to talk about the science of how pollination works before it's out because, you know, most people probably have forgotten some of this stuff that we studied in eighth grade science class. But uh, but, but I need to figure out how and why did you decide to write about pollinators? It was really a a benefit of my work as a journalist. So one of the things that I like best about being a journalist is the fact that when I want to learn something, I have access to all sorts of experts who are willing to answer nosy questions because I'm writing an article. And so as I was trying to learn more and more about bees in particular, I started writing a lot of stories for places like NPR about what was happening with bees, and I started connecting with more and more experts and um, continuing to produce content around bees. And an editor at Island Press got in touch with me and said, we put out a book in, I believe it was 1997, called The Forgotten Pollinator, and we want to update it because now people are talking about pollinator decline and this crisis that we're facing, and we need to put out a new book. And she said, I saw your stories, and I wondered if you would be interested. So this book came to you, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice when books come to you, right? Exactly. (laughs) We're going to talk about that later in the show in the Writing Life segment. But uh, let's talk about – you mentioned the the word crisis, and so I want to understand a little bit about some of the things that are at stake here – What is at stake? So there are two big things at stake. One is the diversity of our food supply. So pollinators are responsible for about one out of every three bites of food that we take. And that includes everything from coffee and tea and oranges and almonds to 
you know, broccoli and carrots. And, and chocolate too, right? Yeah. Chocolate, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> and, tequila. And, yeah. And we're going to save the tea and tequila discussion for later in the show because that's that. I mean, that would be a good reason for people to save pollinators, right? I mean, I will take any reason <laughs> that people um, will glom onto to save pollinators. Chocolate. I think chocolate is going to get me interested in this uh, right? subject. So anyway, so we're, we're at risk of God, one in three. One in three bites of food that we take, yeah, we can thank a pollinator for. And so if pollinators were to disappear, our food supply would change dramatically. We'd be left with things like or meat and pop grains. Pop-tarts, right? Pop-tarts pop, pop would still be on the shelves. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's about yeah. it, right? I mean, and I do like a pop-tart. I mean, you can survive in a dystopian world with pop-tarts, I hear. You can. <laughs> um, but we also would not have so right. many of the foods in, that we eat every day. We would be limited really to Pop-Tarts, meat and, and grains. Why do you think people aren't really paying much attention to this issue? I think people are paying more attention than they ever have to the issue. I think that any time that you ask people to change their habits, it's a bit more of a challenge. Kind of like recycling. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I remember when recycling first started in my town, 30 plus years ago, my dad was adamantly against it. He said, mm -hmm. I am not sorting my trash. <laughs> right. And now my dad has just passed, but my parents have um, in their home a garbage bin, a recycle bin, and a green bin. And so they're sorting their trash into all of these different categories willingly and without complaint because they've been trained over the years to do it. And I think that's where we need to get with pollinators not just identifying that there's a crisis, but being willing to change behavior. I think the other challenge in getting people kind of excited about pollinators is, I mean, a lot of them aren't that cute. They're not that recognizable. People can't necessarily tell the difference between a honeybee, which is a great pollinator, and a wasp, which mm -hmm. is a really ineffective pollinator. They just classify them as black and yellow stingy things. And so if there's no kind of face for pollinators and there's no real excitement around them looking fuzzy and adorable, it's harder to get people to think, oh, I've got to save that mm. thing. All right, Jody, that's kind of a good segue to the next read here. There are certain pollinators that are recognizable. There are certain pollinators that aren't. And so this next read is a bit instructive about the different types of pollinators. So any, any other thing you'll say about this before you read it? I think it's really interesting to know why we've come to identify pollination with certain species mm. and not with others. Okay. Do you have an answer to that? It's in right. the, it's it's in the, the If I'll just wait and listen, I'll, just, I'll be good. Okay. It'll, I'll hit you with it. All right, good. Researching protecting pollinators helped me understand that a lot of us have forgotten the role that pollinators play in our ecosystem. When I mentioned this project, people responded with, so you're writing a book about bees. Well, sort of. In writing this book, I wanted to go back to basics, because before we can understand what's happening with pollinators and what's being done or what can be done to protect them, we first need to be reminded of what pollination is, who does the work, and why it matters. Pretty creatures like honeybees and monarch butterflies have become the faces of pollination. Less attractive pollinators like hoverflies or hawk moths are almost never part of the conversation, because it's hard to get children and adults excited about hard-to-identify insects that lack colorful anatomies and enchanting stories of long migratory journeys. So those childhood coloring pages are often filled with monarch butterflies, honeybees, and hummingbirds, which remain the most well-studied and well-understood pollinators. Monarch expert Karen Oberhauser believes familiarity brings certain pollinators more fame. She told me, I give a lot of talks about monarchs to the public, and so many people have stories about the interactions they've had with monarchs throughout their lives. And that familiarity breeds this real passion for monarchs. No one remembers an interaction with a hoverfly, so it gets erased from our consciousness, along with thousands of other less iconic pollinator species that need our help. All pollinators are facing extreme threats, habitat loss, invasive species, pesticides, and climate change. And thanks to an increasing awareness of the impacts of pollinators, people do want to help, but they have no idea where to start. And sometimes their helpful gestures end up doing more harm than good. During the last two decades, monarch populations have plummeted to record lows, and colony collapse disorder has seen honeybees abandoning their hives with no apparent cause. But awareness of the issue is now greater than ever before. 
Today, farmers, gardeners, businesses, nonprofits, and eaters alike are stepping up to save the creatures that feed our world, planting habitats filled with native species, avoiding chemicals, participating in citizen science projects, and spreading the word that pollinators are in trouble and we need to take action to save them. Pollinators may be in peril, but they are no longer forgotten. So, Jody, a couple of things that are interesting to me about this read. One is that, uh, and, and as I was reading this book too, you don't normally think of farmers, or I, I don't, I guess, being you know, concerned about uh, the wildlife as much as their crop, right? I mean, the deer, they're going to shoot them, get them, out of my, get them out of my field, whatever. But what I'm learning through reading this book is that farmers are very much actively involved in helping to support and save the pollinators. Is that right? Yeah, so I would say that agriculture presents uh, both the biggest threat to pollinators, but also farmers have the biggest opportunities to step in and save them. And so we are seeing farmers who are embracing organic practices so that their pesticides use is minimized and they can save the pollinators. They are devoting areas of their fields that are not well suited to growing crops so they're in odd angles or places that a tractor or pivot irrigation can't reach and they're putting in pollinator strips Um, they're pursuing pollinator friendly certification for some of the crops that they grow because i think that farmers realize that without pollinators our food supply is in trouble Mm. and they really need to step up and start doing the work if they want to preserve their harvest essentially yeah and the other thing is about this read you outline sort of the difference between you know, Disney's version of what a pollinator looks like <laughs> and, and the creepy crawly right. <laughs> side of things. Uh, we were out uh, hiking recently and a young mother was with a little girl who was chasing a butterfly, you know, with her hands. Mm-hmm. And she said, now be careful with it when you catch it, you know, hold it, hold it softly because the magic fairy dust may come off, you know, <laughs> kind of a, kind of a way to get them to respect. So, so when in doubt, use the magic fairy dust thing. The magic uh, fairy dust is actually pollen. <laughs> Oh, true. I guess that's that's true. Yeah. All right. And in that first read you did, it harkens back to the children as well. I've got this vision of the, of the young child standing there paying attention when the bee's crawling across their nose. Hard to do, right? It's very hard to I do. I mean, you had to stay on the other side of the uh, screen. You couldn't even get out to... Well, the these high. were butterflies, so they were far less scary <laughs> than bees, and they can't sting you, so that was a little more... Uh, of a safe interaction with the the pollinator. But the advice is the same if a bee lands on you, right? The advice is the same if a bee lands on you, yes. Okay, all right, just so we got that straight. Okay, so now we're going to lead into our next read here, but in in order to do that, we're going to be talking uh, plant sex, for lack of a better word, the basics of um, how this gets started. Give us some of those uh, eighth-grade science terms as to how this works. Right. So you can't talk about the birds and the bees without literally talking about the birds and the bees. (laughs) And I think that we have forgotten how this all works. And so at a very basic level, there are three kinds of pollination. There's self-pollination, there's cross-pollination, and there's wind pollination. So in order for pollination to happen, the male and female parts of the plant have to get together, just like human reproduction. Mm -hmm. But they've got creative ways to do it. Right. So the yeah. pistil and the stamen need to get together to exchange the pollen in order to set fruit. In wind pollination, the wind picks up the grains of pollen and makes that process happen. In self-pollination, the um, pistil and the stamen are close enough together that they can make it happen on their own. Right. So there's a little you know, fruit, vegetable self-love there. In cross-pollination, which is by far the most popular kind of pollination or most common kind of pollination, the flower relies on the insect to transfer the pollen. So like a bee would land um, on the flower and the pollen would attach to its fuzzy little body. And then as the bee goes from flower to flower to collect nectar, that pollen is transferred from the pistil and the stamen. So that's how the pollination happens. And of those three types of pollination, which is the dominant of the three in terms of, or does it depend on the part of the country you're in? Or It depends where? on how you're classifying dominant. So if we're talking about acreage, in the U.S., the majority of our acreage is devoted to crops like corn, soy, and wheat, which are all wind pollinated, which is why if we lost insect pollinators, we would still have corn, soy, and wheat as a crop. Mm. Um, so far fewer of our acreage is devoted to fruit and vegetable crops, but there are more types of 
plants, fruits and vegetable plants that rely on cross-pollination, if that makes sense. Okay. And speaking of cross-pollination um, and the fears that come with the loss of, of the bees um, and others who are flying around carrying this pollen from one, one part to the other, science is getting into it in sort of a technical way, right? Um, and I'm speaking now of drones. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've got a little read here um, in the book uh, about drones, and you've got a question as part of that. Are high-tech drones the next generation pollinators? Let's, uh, let's dive into that, and we might talk about it in just a second. Okay. The news that bees are in trouble has led to several experimental efforts to determine whether high-tech methods have the potential to supplement or even replace bee pollinators. Drones have emerged as a popular option. Several researchers have created robot bees. Even Walmart is in on the action. In 2018, the retail giant filed a patent for an autonomous robot bee, along with patents for six other drone-based farming innovations. Though the designs are varied, some have textured bodies to help collect pollen grains, others have flapping wings, all were designed to achieve artificial pollination. Meanwhile, a NASA team was awarded $125,000 to develop Mars bees, a swarm of robot bees designed to buzz around Mars and gather data from the atmosphere. When Harvard introduced the first robot bees in 2014, researchers predicted that the high-tech pollinators could be used to pollinate fields of crops in the next decade. In one iteration, bee-sized drones were retrofitted with gel-coated horsehair bristles that mimicked the fuzz-coated bodies of bees and generated a light electric charge to attract pollen grains. In trials, researchers kept the device, about the size of a hummingbird, aloft via remote control and maneuvered it until the bristles brushed the stamen of wild lilies. The 2017 experiment marked the first successful demonstration of artificial robotic pollination. But success with drone pollination is much less successful than insect pollination. The research showed that although the gel allowed pollen to stick to the bristles on the robo-bee, the drone picked up just 41% of the pollen in the flowers and managed to pollinate those flowers on just over half of its attempts. Drone bees might be innovative, but the artificial pollinators are not apt to replace bees for widespread pollination. Critics warn that robot bees are expensive to build, cannot pollinate without an operator at the controls, and pose threats to actual bees. In this experiment, the drone pollinated a large flower and might not be as adept at collecting and spreading pollen in smaller flowers. The process of pollinating entire crops would be time-consuming and cost-prohibitive. So, although technological innovation is generating a lot of buzz, significant questions remain about the widespread application of artificial pollination. Still, the race to build the ultimate pollinating drone continues. So what do you think, Jody? Are we going to be uh, having a bunch of uh, drones dropping presents at our house and then going out to pollinate on their way back to pick up more? Amazon really should get in on that action <laughs> they and should, have, shouldn't they? Do yeah. have a double-duty drone. That's right. You can get coming and going because they don't like to have an empty you know, truck load, right? That's right. <laughs> going in one direction. You know, yeah. I think that this is something we really need to be worried about. So there are, um, s- there have been some widespread news reports about Uh, apple orchards in China being pollinated by hand, where the workers are going uh, through the trees, through the orchards with small paintbrushes, and they're doing the pollination by hand because their atmosphere, their environment is so bad over there that their pollinator populations um, have really dwindled to the point that they can't pollinate the apple trees anymore, and so they're forced to hand pollinate. I think it's interesting that they're doing the research, but my hope is that we won't ever have such a pollinator crisis that it will be necessary. Um, If that were to happen, the cost of our food would skyrocket uh, because of all of these issues, the expense to build them, the need for a, you know, human controller, that sort of thing. So I I don't, I I hope this isn't where we're going. And it's a little troubling to me that this is kind of the kind of research that we need to be doing. Okay, listeners, when we come back, we're going to get into some of the quirks, um, from the world of pollinators. Uh, we're also going to talk about one leaf that uh, brings joy to us, tea, and with her uh, book, Growing Your Own Tea Garden, and how bees and tea are kind of connected. Uh, we'll, we'll have the Writing Life segment. We'll have a final read, so please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. And today, we're talking about authors reaching their goals with their books. 
Fabe, you challenge your authors about their goals? I really do. I help them to visualize a realistic yet moonshot version of an actionable plan for actually achieving those goals. Hmm. So what type of goals are you talking about? Anything from increasing an audience to building a platform. And increasing an audience is really honing in on a specific targeted group, you know, such as realtors, small business owners, accountants, pregnant moms. We have that. Mm. Um, building a speaking platform, which is needing to grow an audience, plus make sure that a particular type of event or conference planner can actually see the credibility of the positioning the author is making. And you do this through these strategy sessions at the outset, right, before you're even finished with the book. We dig in and find out those goals and once we know the goals then yes we put a plan to that to help them achieve it any examples of recent successes um, Jack Grossman's book Child of the Forest is in the process of being funded for a feature film Stacy Sims has turned her brand into a platform as a mother with child of a type 1 diabetes and pre-sales of her books have already landed her some great national speaking and engagements well wow, so if we've got someone out there that wants to try to you know, meet their goals through the writing process. How do they do it? Oh, contact me and my team directly at info at sparkpublications.com or check us out, sparkpublications.com backslash books. All right. Thanks, baby. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. Hey, listeners, we're back with Jody Helmer. She's the uh, author of Protecting Pollinators, How to Save the Creatures That Feed Our World, and many other books and articles. And Jody, before we uh, move to growing your own tea garden, um, what's this about stolen beehives? You, you write about that in your book. I do write about that in the book. So this started out as an NPR article there were some news reports about uh, thieves stealing beehives, and it, it's other beekeepers that are stealing them. So every year, commercial beekeepers transport their hives around the country following the nectar flow. Now, I've got this vision, sort of a Keystone Cops kind of thing, when people stealing beehives and things don't go out well and <laughs> the bees tip over and they start chasing the criminals down the sidewalk. No, but that's not how it works, right? That would be... <laughs> A good deterrent, but I think, and this is the way that law enforcement knows that it's professional beekeepers that are stealing the hives, because what's happening is they're going into primarily almond orchards in California. They're going in under the cloak of darkness. They're taking Mm. um, trailers full of beehives. So these are people who know how to handle hives. They know how to transport hives. They know how to work with bees. And they're, they're coming in and stealing the hives. And the motivation really is money. Right, because the farmers rent these hives, and it costs about $236 to rent a single beehive. This was the last statistic for last pollination season. And, and we're talking about almond orchards that are huge, right? So you got to put a lot of beehives. You have to put a lot of beehives. So we're talking yeah. about hundreds of thousands of hives that make the trip out to California. And because we're having such a crisis with bees, there is a huge demand for hives and there's not enough supply. And so the prices for hive rental keep going up. Beekeepers, commercial beekeepers are struggling to maintain and sustain their hives so that they have enough to meet the demand. And so what they're doing is they're they're stealing them from each other. Mm. I'm guessing this is the one thing you cannot order on Amazon uh, or, or <laughs> for, for an almond orchard. No, you can order an empty hive on Amazon, um, but not not a fully uh, operational beehive. No, they don't ship those. But the ones that are um, getting caught short, I'm sure there's an insurance angle to this too, but somebody's having to supply these hives. Uh, The farmers are just renting them. Correct. Uh, they got to return them, though, presumably, after they're done with them. So there's insurance. There's probably a a big claim loss here going on. So there's probably – and, you know, investigators that are assigned by insurance companies to go chase down these bee stealers, right? Yep, yep. That's going to be a good novel in there somewhere, right? It might yeah. be a good novel in there. Yeah. And it's, you know, it really is in some ways, and I hate to say this, but it's the perfect crime. So it's not like our dogs where you can microchip them and you can say, well, that's my dog. Mm. You can't say that's my bee. Yeah. There's no way to tell one bee from another. You just simply you know, take the frames out and put them in unmarked hives. Now, some beekeepers have tried to thwart these efforts with things like GPS trackers. Almond orchards have hired security, round-the-clock security, to make sure that this isn't happening so they can protect their pollination. 
but it continues every season to be a problem. Probably a little expensive to chip a bee, right? You know? It would be very expensive to <laughs> chip a bee. Yeah, somebody steps on it. There you go. There's, there's. All right, so now we got another quirk here that I saw in the book. Doggy detective keeps bees safe. Yes. Now you have these different reference boxes, which I think is, is a nice breather break as you're reading. Uh, you and I talked before the show. You know, this, There's some a lot of heavy stuff in this book, but you've broken it up with interesting little art because you're like you're a journalist right you usually write shorter pieces so i know what i'll do i'll write shorter pieces and stick them in the middle of this longer stuff right right. and one of the short pieces was doggy detective keeps bees safe right tell us about it so because these hives are shipped uh, from all over the country predominantly to the west coast to follow the nectar flow um, they have to be inspected for disease before they can be transported across state lines And as you can imagine, it is incredibly time-consuming for an apiarist to go into each hive, inspect it, confirm that there's no disease that could be transmitted between hives. And so the state of Maryland has a now a two-dog team that have been trained to sniff out what's called American fowl brood, which is a disease that affects beehives. It's very stinky. Um, and so they've, just like they've trained dogs to sniff out bombs and drugs and all those other things, these dogs have been trained to detect the smell of American fowl brood. And so they can go through a hundred hives in about the same amount of time as their owner, Sybil Preston, who's a state apiarist, can go through 10. So she runs this two dog mm-hmm. team and they inspect thousands and thousands of hives at a time and certify that they're safe to be transported. So... Have your rescue dogs learned how to do this? <laughs> no. They have learned how to sit for a treat and not pee in the house, and we are calling that that's, that's, success. That's success. All right. Yes. Well, we got a third quirk here I want to talk about. It's on uh, page 169, and it's uh, box 7-5, Citizen Scientists Honor the Stars. Yes. Uh, we're not talking about the walk of fame here with the star but but we're getting famous people are getting you know insects and things named after them right yes yes so as uh, (laughs) new pollinators have been discovered which happens from time to time um some of the citizen scientists with a good sense of humor are choosing celebrity names so the donald trump moth um, was named because he has a blonde quaff of scales on his head. Okay. And he was discovered just before uh, Trump took office. All right. We also have pollinators named after Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right, so I can't even pronounce the one that's for Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like, it's, it's too long. It's, it, the scientists have gotten into this, but there's sort of a Leonardo piece to it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And then you even have kind of joked here about needing a... A bat named after Batman, maybe? So. A bat named after the Batman actor Christian Gale, uh, Christian Bale, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, or a beetle named for John Lennon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, if you are famous, you could have a pollinator named after you. You could have a pollinator <laughs> named after you. You better hope it's not an ugly one. All right, so you got this other book, uh, Jody, uh, kind of ties together. Tell us about the connection between bees and teas. Yeah, so I didn't set out to write these books together. Um, It happened. And as I was writing them, I thought, oh, there's a lot of crossover here because Mm. the growing your own tea garden is really about the plants that you can grow at home and then steep to make teas or tisans, which are herbal Mm. infusions. And a lot of those plants, things like echinacea and um, lavender and lemon balm, are all insect pollinated. And so if you plant a tea garden, you are, in fact, supporting pollinators because you're providing them with an excellent source of nectar. Mm. So we're going to come back at the end of the show with some of your suggestions about how to protect pollinators. But uh, for now, you wrote two books in the same year, right? You did the tea book and you did the pollinator book. Yeah. Yes. Now, they're a little bit different books. I mean, the the tea book has got a lot more pictures and illustrations because you're actually showing someone how to plant a tea garden, right? Correct. Yeah. How many different kinds of plants bring us tea? Ooh, I didn't count. You didn't count? Give me an estimate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hundreds. Hundreds. Okay. Okay. Yeah, hundreds. Uh, and do they come 
off the stalk in those little tea bags? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to do a little bit of work. What, what, what do you What do you have to do between there and the tea bag? Is it? <laughs> so it depends on which plant we're talking about. So the actual tea plant, mm-hmm. uh, Camellia sinensis, is the plant that gives us black, green, white, and oolong tea. Um, they all, those leaves all come off the same plant. And are they, they're are they all the tea in China. Is that where it comes from? That's exactly where that comes from. Okay. So that's where primarily where Camellia sinensis is grown. Although you can grow it here in the South. Um, and the way that that tea is processed depends on whether it's considered black tea, green tea, white tea, or oolong tea. Um, and that takes a lot more processing. There's a lot more work involved in making true tea. If we're talking about herbal infusions, and you're growing a pot full of mint on your balcony, making tea can be as simple as harvesting some leaves, washing them, putting them in a tea bag, steeping them, and drinking. Mm. Um, it can also be more complicated. You can go through and dry the leaves, and you can start blending to make different kinds of infusions, experimenting with flavors and different ingredients. So it can either be mm. really simple or really complex, depending on how much of a tea geek you want to be. And you actually go around and, and you teach people about, you know, how to grow tea and how to process tea. And mm-hmm. you're actually going to be, we're, we're doing this in November, but uh, this will come out in season five. But you're actually at Charlotte Lit tonight. You're going to be doing that in that space. So what are you going to do? You're going to have people roll up their sleeves. You're going to have a demonstration. How's that, how does that work? Yeah. So we're going to talk about where tea comes from because I think people don't really know. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to talk about the different ways that you may choose to go about making your own tea. So some people are just in it for the flavor. Um, some people want it to also look pretty. And then some people are in it for the medicinal benefits because a lot of these herbs have you know, different um, health benefits. And so we're going to talk about how you make those selections to make a tea that makes sense for you. And then, yeah, we're going to roll up our sleeves and Mm. we are going to start tasting things and mixing things and experimenting with flavors and coming up with the, everybody's going to make their own custom tea blend. All right. So that book's going to be in the show notes too. And it's got a nice colorful cover and it's got some great pictures inside of it. But let's talk about why bats are our friends. Okay. Bats. If you want to drink a margarita, you better thank a bat. Thank thank a bat. Thank a bat. So we're not talking about a wooden bat. We're talking about, a bat that flies in the night. Actual bat, yeah. yes. Um, so the agave plant, which gives us tequila, relies on bats for pollination. And so what's happening in some places is agave growers are harvesting their agave for tequila before it flowers. And so it means that there's no nectar for the bats, which is obviously a problem because they've lost a primary food source. It also means that um, the the agave plants are losing biodiversity because they're not being pollinated by bats. So there's, you know, there's less c- control over kind of where the pollination is happening and the biodiversity of the species. And so what some growers are doing, recognizing that this is an issue and feeling probably some pressure from consumers is they're creating what they're calling bat-friendly tequila. <laughs> and I'm, somehow, I'm not sure how this is going to sell at the ABC store. <laughs> depends on how much you care about a pollinator. But basically what they're doing yeah. is they're letting, um, they're letting a portion of their agave crop flower so that mm-hmm. the bats have the nectar and the bats can do the pollination. And then that is the agave that's being used for this bat-friendly tequila. So if you're mm-hmm. into tequila... You like a margarita, you should be looking for bat-friendly tequila. You should save the bats. Maybe get a bat house yes. out in the backyard. Well, you know, bats, I, I, I had to, had a case one time involving bats, and uh, so I, I learned a little bit about as a lawyer, and it, uh, apparently bats and really enjoyed the, the upper parts of this house where the eaves were, and they, and they kind of crawled up in there, lots and lots of bats. But they triangulate, and they move around, and they eat, I don't know how many times their body weight and insects and the mosquitoes yeah. in the night, but uh, but they're still our friends, right? They are our friends, okay. yes. All right. All right, let's do this. Let's do a little bit of a writing life segment, if we will. I do this in every show, and I just kind of dive into to your writing life. Uh, your writing life for 17 years has been the freelance world. You know, we've had a lot of different kind of writers on here, you know, memoirs, novelists, short story, poetry. Uh, freelance, though, you're actually getting paid, you know, to do this work, right? <laughs> I do get paid to do this work, (laughs) yes. So what does it mean to be a freelancer? So for me, because I focus primarily on um, journalism, I 
pitch a whole lot of stories to a whole lot of outlets like Scientific American and NPR and Civil Eats in those places. And um, when I'm lucky, they accept the stories, they hire me to write them. And it often means that I'm juggling multiple stories at any given time on a whole diversity of topics. Sometimes I have to really focus when I'm interviewing someone and think, what, who am I talking to and what am I talking to them about? Because five right. minutes from now, I'm going to be talking to somebody else about something else. But it means that I have a whole, I work for a whole lot of editors covering, covering a whole lot of different stories. Now, when you first got into this 17 years ago, I'm, I'm sure a little bit of anxiety there because, you know, you, you, nobody's withholding taxes, nobody's giving you a regular check, you're having to go out and get your own stories. Um, but in some respects, that's kind of what the world of journalism is turning into today, right? So you've got about a 17-year advantage on a lot of people that worked uh, for newspapers, right? Yeah, yeah when I started, um, newspapers were a lot more robust. They mm -hmm. had a lot fuller staffs. Um, there were far fewer layoffs. I started in 2002, and it was in 2009 during the recession when media kind of imploded. And mm -hmm. a lot of people were laid off. Newspapers went down to skeleton staffs. They cut issues. Some towns lost papers altogether. Um, so things really shifted. But the interesting thing that happened during that time was as there was less what we would call traditional journalism, there was more uh, what's called custom content. So brands were starting to get into the publishing game. So one of my first custom content assignments was from Acura. So Acura publishes a magazine called Acura Style for Acura owners. And I, they hired me to do a story on fitness trackers. And For people that are driving cars? I don't <laughs> pretend to know of the motivation behind some of yeah. these things. But yeah. yeah, they were producing a really beautiful, glossy magazine with journalistically told stories to help mm. support their brand. And that's become a lot more common. So the... Media landscape has shifted pretty significantly over the last 17 years. I feel really grateful that I'm still in it. So what do you love about being a freelancer? Oh, so much. I control my own schedule. I work from home. I can stop and take a break in the middle of the day to walk the dogs if I need to think something through, which I could never do when I worked in a, you know, an office job. Mm -hmm. They didn't like you to wander around thinking. Don't you have to think something through before you walk seven dogs? I mean, <laughs> you got. Don't you have to have a flight plan or something? You know, before, before you do have to have a bit of a flight plan. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a um, it's an Olympic sport. Yeah, that's probably the only Olympic sport I can medal in. But I feel fairly certain I'd get a gold in that. Yeah. Um, I also like I like the ability to chase down stories that interest me to really choose my clients. And honestly, I like the ability to control my income. I know that a lot of people think. Freelancing is fairly risky, and I've been at this a long time. But now if I need to put a new roof on the house, for example, I just say, okay, I need to you know, build $10,000 more to cover mm -hmm. the cost of the roof. And mm -hmm. that's not something that you can do if you're at a traditional salaried job, unless you have some sort of side hustle. Yeah. So what is the difference between writing books and magazine articles? Because you've done both. I've done both. I have to confess, although I love having written a book, I hate yeah, you, you writing a book. You did confess this to me. I thought it was surprising. So, yeah, you don't yeah. like that part. I don't like to write a book. I think that I have a, I don't know that I have a short attention span, but I like to get into something, write it, and then get out. And you don't do that with a book. You're in it for a really long time. You're... But, but listeners, Jody was very interested in reading her book over and over and over again, right? I mean, you you were you didn't want to get in and out of that one, right? I did want to get in and out of that one. You are being honest, right? I you am did. being honest. Yes, I. You know, so I can I, you can flip through it, right, and pick the parts you like, and, and I read, can read the boxes and read the different mm -hmm. pieces. And I'm really proud of it. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's very comprehensive work, and it's uh, thank you. You've got a lot of great facts in here, and some great pictures too, and. The boxes help because they get little stories in there. The boxes help. And that helped me in the writing. But I, I really prefer to write shorter. I'm not someone who really likes to wax poetic for a really long time. But writing shorter is not necessarily easier. Sometimes people mm -hmm. make that mistake that uh, it's like the, I may have said this before on the podcast, but if I had more time, I'd have written you a sh shorter letter, right? Yes. You know, because it takes time to be concise and, and get your points across in less, mm -hmm. in less space. So that's a right. talent you've got to have there as well. Um, Okay, so if someone is wanting to make money with writing, 
Would you recommend writing books or freelancing for magazines? <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if someone yeah. wants to make money writing, yeah, and I'm I, sure there's somebody listening that might want to make money writing. So, yeah. um, and they are interested in nonfiction because I don't know right. anything about writing okay. fiction right. we'll, or we'll memoir. Take fiction off the table. Fiction memoir. We qualify the question. All now. of those things off the table. If you are looking at straight nonfiction and you are interested in making money, you need to steer clear of books. Um, I <laughs> can far, tell you. As far, far away as you can be. Yeah. As far away as you can be. I was given a year uh, on both of those book contracts. So the Tea Garden, I had a year to write. Protecting Pollinators, I had a year to write. And my advances combined were less than I make in a traditional month of freelancing. Okay, but is there, I mean, like we, we all sometimes talk about authors building platforms, mm-hmm. right? So do you think, though, that having those books there is helpful to you in getting other gigs that helps support that monthly? I think a little bit. I think there's also the potential for making money through things like speaking fees and workshops and classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also on the back end a whole lot of unpaid work that you do to promote the book in the hopes that people will buy it. So, you know, it's a lot of time doing free speaking engagements and book Mm -hmm. signings and Mm -hmm. radio interviews and TV appearances and podcasts and things Mm -hmm. that, you know, you want to do to get the word out about the book. You want people to be excited about the work that you've done, but those are things that take you away from paying work. So it's a real calculated risk, I think, for someone who's doing this for a living to really look at how do you balance the things that can help you build a platform and the things that will help you put groceries in the cupboard because mm-hmm. no amount of amazing platform that I could have. And I, I don't, I will say that my platform is, you know, it's not that amazing. I don't have a million Instagram. I'm not even on Instagram. I have, mm-hmm. I don't know, 1200 Twitter followers or kinda something. It's kind of hard to have any Instagram followers if you're not on if Instagram. If you're not there. <laughs> um, but you know, even if I had a million Instagram followers and a million Twitter followers, you know, my mortgage company is not going to be impressed with that. I can't yeah. pay my bills with that. So you have to balance those things. So life on the farm. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a writer and a farmer. Mm-hmm. You write, you live mm-hmm. on a farm. Um, how do farming and writing go hand in hand? I would say for most people, they probably don't. Um, for me, um, I write a lot about farming. And so when I'm talking to somebody about you know, how to winterize your coop for the chickens because I'm doing a story on it. You know, we connect in that way that's, you know, I've done this, you've done that, let's trade stories. It makes people, I think, sometimes feel more comfortable talking to me because I understand how much a bale of hay costs and the trouble that you have trying to access a large animal veterinarian, those kinds of things. The other thing is for the tea garden book, at least, and the book that I have coming out next year, which is by the same publisher and focuses more generally on garden-grown beverages, so cocktails, mocktails, infused waters and such, the farm provides a test plot for mm, the things yeah. that I'm growing and writing about. Now, other than the pay that you get as a freelancer you know, for writing, what, what kind of joy do you get from the writing process? Because I guess I'm asking this in a way because you do this for a living. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a lot of writers who do this, you know, because they've got a story in their head they've got to get out. Or they've got this great fiction novel they want to write. Or there's a memoir that means something to them. You're doing this, though. Um, you're taking on these projects. You're writing. Yeah, that's your job. But e- even people's jobs, you know, bring certain levels of satisfaction. Yours just happens to be writing. What is it about writing that brings you satisfaction? I... This is, I think, a really non-traditional answer. I really like owning a business. So mm-hmm. that is really interesting to me. And mm-hmm. I also appreciate being able to chase a curiosity and talk to really smart, interesting, passionate people about their work. So because I'm a journalist and I'm not telling my own stories, I'm telling other people's stories, I really get to talk to some of the most interesting people, like Sybil Preston, who's a state apiarist in Maryland, who has these beehive sniffing dogs. I mean, that's a cool story. And so to be able to talk to her on the phone and say, tell me how you ended up with mm. beehive sniffing dogs. I, I mean, I could do that all day. I do it all day. It's fascinating to me. But in terms of the craft itself, and uh, you obviously have to learn 
certain techniques to write the way you write. Um, and that's, that's the craft part. Um, but there's also a part, I mean, do, do nonfiction writers have a muse that comes to them and they're no, you're shaking your head. No, no, it's, it, it's all thinking logical, putting it on paper, but you're, you're also telling a story though. Right. So yeah. to me, it feels a little bit like putting together a puzzle. There are all of these pieces, which are sources and facts and data and a little bit of color that have to come together to create this story. Mm. And I think there's probably less craft in it than technique. I mean, there's a certain way we learned but, but this. That, but that's craft. I mean, that's, that's your, you're using your skill set to get to, I mean, you don't want it to be something that people read that's, you know, sort of lumbering along. You, you want to pull right. them in, right? right. It's not just Joe Friday, you know, the facts, ma'am, right? Right. You want to make it somewhat interesting, right? No, that's yeah, true, yeah, for yeah. sure, yeah. yeah. And you try to pull them in, you know where the break are, breaks are. And right. So these are techniques you've learned, but it's just, because it's your job, I guess, it's just part of what you what you do. Right. All right, <clears throat> so last writing life question. What would you tell your younger writing life self something very helpful that you've learned after 17 years of writing that you wish you had known when you were that younger writer? That is a really good and really hard question. I think that when I started out, I wasn't sure that it was possible to have a 17-year, and I hope 17 more years, mm -hmm. career doing this. That I, I thought it might be something fun to do on a wild hair in my early 20s, but I didn't think it would be something that could legitimately sustain me both from a financial standpoint and from an interest standpoint. I, I wasn't sure that I would still be as passionate about it as I was back then. And so I think that I would tell myself that it's possible to make a good living at this and it's possible to want to continue making a living at this mm -hmm. if you just put the work in. And you, you shared with me before uh, we started recording today that you're working on a book. Mm-hmm about the 17 things that you've learned in your 17 years of being a freelancer. Can you give us a hint about uh, one or two of those? Sure. So it's just a newsletter story oh, that newsletter I put story, out. Not a book. Not a book. It's the thing you like to write. No more books. <laughs> it's the thing you like to write. Yes. So I um, have a monthly-ish newsletter um, about the writing life, and um, it's very focused on the ins and outs of running a freelance business. And it, we talk about things like contracts and finding clients and upping your income and things like that. And can people access this through your website? Or? Yes, you can sign up for it on my website. Okay, which, and, and which will be in the show notes, listeners. You can go there and link, right. link to Jody. Yeah, so, and um, right, there you go. The, so the December newsletter, December marks my 17th year as a freelance journalist. And so I have put together 17 things that I've learned over 17 years. And there are things like... You, you really have to invest in the success of your business. So attending conferences, you and I talked about the North Carolina Writers Network Conference. Right. Yep. Which um, I went to a couple weeks ago in Asheville. And I went to it when it was in Charlotte earlier yep. this year. Yeah. And, you know, I go to a conference in New York every year. I went to a conference in D.C. last month. I think you really have to invest in that kind of professional development in order to further your career. I think that's something that I've learned over the years is really important. It's I think people will say I can't afford it, and I feel like I can't afford not to do it. It's almost twofold. You're, you're, you're learning as you go to these conferences, but you're also meeting like-minded people. Right? Yeah, and so that's one of the other points um, in the 17 things is that your relationships really matter. So I may work alone in my office, but I have a really great network of freelance writers that I rely on for things like how to price a project or should I sign this contract or what, you know, what did you think of working with this editor? Or sometimes it's just, man, I woke up to three rejections this morning and my mm. life feels like it sucks right now. Yeah. And having that someone on the other end of the phone who really gets what you're going through, those relationships, I think, are one of the main things that sustained me through this career. Mm. I didn't ask you this question, but um, how do you deal with rejection? It used to sting a lot more. And I think that the longer that I 
go on, the more I realize that it's often not about me or my idea or my writing, although sometimes it is. Sometimes it absolutely is an editor that doesn't Mm -hmm. click with me, doesn't click with my idea, hates my style. Um, It really is often about getting an idea in front of the editor, the right editor at the right time. And so when I'm rejected now, I think, okay, this wasn't the right idea or the right time for this particular editor, but I'm going to move on and send that idea to someone else. That's good, good, good attitude. All right, we're going to wrap it up here today with, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of your tips, what people can do to help pollinators. And then we've got a uh, final read here. All right, Jody, you've got this uh, chapter in your book called Stand Up and Be Counted, which involves citizen scientists. And talk about what that means and how that's one of the ways that people can can help this pollinator crisis. So citizen scientists are just as they sound. They're regular citizens who are helping collect data, in this case about pollinators. So the idea is that a scientist who's studying pollinators can't be in all places at all times. And so in order to collect robust data sets, they rely on people to do things like the um, Christmas bird count is something that the Audubon Society does. You sit in your window, you count the number of birds who come to a feeder, you record the information, you send it to the Audubon Society. It gives them information about population counts, about species, those kinds of things. And so there are several citizen science projects that people who are passionate about pollinators can get involved with so that scientists can better understand what's happening to pollinator populations. Great. All right. Read for us, please. Elaine Tucker learned how to spot monarch eggs on milkweed plants during summer camp. She recalls going in search of eggs when no one was looking, checking the undersides of the bright green leaves for the telltale oval, white, or off-white eggs with small vertical ridges on their edges, plucking four eggs from the leaves of the milkweed plants and taking them home. Two monarchs hatched, delighting the curious child and triggering a self-described obsession with the butterflies, which followed her into adulthood. In 1998, concerned over reports of declining monarch populations, Tucker signed up as a citizen scientist with the Monarch Larva Monitoring Project. I'm never going to be a lobbyist, she says. I don't write letters to my legislators, but I do care about a lot of issues, about the environment and about the impact on monarchs, and I see the Monarch Larva Monitoring Project as a way that I can help those who are helping the things I care about. Monarch expert Karen Oberhauser started the Monarch Larva Monitoring Project in 1991 at the University of Minnesota as a grassroots effort. Her goal was to collect long-term data from citizen scientists to learn about monarch populations and milkweed habitat at breeding grounds across North America. Citizen scientists observe specific patches of milkweed and report when the plant emerges, when the first egg appears, stages of larval development, and sightings of migrating monarchs. Tucker signed on to observe a patch of milkweed at the Eastman Nature Center in Minneapolis. Each week, she walks a trail to a sheltered patch of milkweed, moving the stems on each plant to and fro to check for eggs and larvae beneath the bright green leaves, and records her observations. She repeats the process each week between May and September, which are the peak times for monarch sightings in Minnesota, and uploads her findings through the MLMP website. Tucker notes that good policy requires hard data, and that is what citizen scientists provide. I'm seeing the help I want to give to the monarchs being spread farther than I could reach myself, she said. And that's what citizen science is about. All right, Jody, I should probably ask you to say as fast as you can, monarch larva monitoring project. <laughs> <laughs> it's <Yeah>. a mouthful. <laughs> it is. So, all right, we've, we've had a lot of fun today. Uh, it's fun to talk about the birds and the bees and plant sex and dogs that sniff. For, and bees that hives that stolen. But this is a serious topic, it is, mm-hmm. and uh, you've got some suggestions, right? And you've got, we're not going to go through all of them, you've got 29 ways um, that we, the normal human beings, uh, even who live in the city here, can help pollinators. Can you pick out two or three and give us some thoughts? Yeah, so I would say just at a very broad level, plant something and stop spraying. So providing some kind of nectar source for pollinators is really important. And what that looks like depends on where you live. So if you live in an apartment and you want to put some flowers out on the balcony, that's great. If you have a larger yard and you want to do more, you can definitely get really into planting native plants and removing invasive species and doing those sorts of things. 
Um, and then anytime you plant anything, just steer clear of spraying it with pesticides. If you've got a pest problem and you're checking your plants often, you can almost always get away with hand removal. So picking up the bugs and squishing them. Or if you feel like you need something a little less squishy, um, you can spray things like mild detergent and water on them to kill them. Or you can use chemicals that are approved for organic use if you have a really bad infestation. But the goal is to steer clear of pesticides that can really be harmful to pollinators so that they're not coming to your plant for nectar and pollen and leaving with pesticide residue. You say something about mulch-free zones and talk about native bees nesting in the ground. I found that out the hard way one time when I overturned a rock and there was a nest of really nasty bees there. You don't really think about that's where they a lot of them hang out, right? Yeah, so yeah. most of our native bees are ground nesting. Mm. And so if you think about the size of a bee and the size of a piece of mulch, they really can't shove that aside in order to get into the ground. So if you leave some bare patches... Um, you give them a spot to nest, and that's really important to their survival. So you're telling us to adopt a monarch in number 11 here. Mm-hmm. I don't see an adopt-a-bat, and there's no <laughs> – I mean, come on. I'm Just, sure there is. You know what? I would bet that you can adopt a bat through a zoo. I, I want to adopt a bat. That's what I want to do. You should. You, know. you should hang a bat house. That is one of the tips. Is that one of the tips? And I, then you can have your house. own bat. I, I remember our daughter. We, tra- we went one time to see whales. They'd seen them 47 days in a row. But the day we were there, of course, we didn't see them. So what do we have to do? We go in and adopt a whale, right, so they can follow the whale around. Now, you can't really follow the monarch, right? It's sort of a fictitious sort of adoption plan here, right? It's a fictitious <laughs> adoption plan. It is a way to support yeah. a nonprofit organization that yeah. is working to bring back monarch populations. It's yeah. a symbol. Well, Jody, this has been uh, great. I've enjoyed spending the time talking about the pollinators, Um uh, you know, I picked this book up at first. I wasn't sure, but I got into it. There's some really interesting facts in here and uh, some scary facts too, right? I mean, if we don't yeah. if we don't step up and do something to protect the bees. Uh, and there's a great cover. We're going to have a picture of the cover uh, in the show notes. Uh, so somebody's put a magnifying glass with strong intensity over the top of this bee, and you can see see the eyeballs coming back at you there. Yep. Uh, but, hey, Jody, thanks for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.